Uh, If you weren't here with us last week, uh, we began a Christmas series, uh, kind of a little bit different than what you might consider in a Christmas series, uh, where we're focusing on God's presence. And what we're doing through this series, for we started last week with God the Father, this morning we're going to turn our attention to God the Son, and next week God the Spirit, is we're looking at the doctrine of the Trinity to lead us into Christmas so we can have a deeper appreciation for what Jesus Christ did, what God did for us, and paving the way that we might have salvation. Now, the word Trinity means threeness. It's a man-made word to define the three attributes of God or characteristics of God. And so we'll uh, be moving forward this morning with God the Son. Now, if you've been here before, you, you know that Typically, what I like to do is I like to focus on one particular passage of Scripture and begin to unpack it and just get into the depths of what God's Word is. But when it comes to the doctrine of the Trinity, there's not just one verse that we can look at. So we're going to be looking at numerous verses and passages, and I'm going to mention them to you. Some of them will be on the screen behind me if you want to write them down, if you want to read them later. Uh, The doctrine of God the Son, which is obviously pointing to about Jesus who we just worshipped, is what makes... Christianity different from all other world religions. There are other religions who accept the greatness of who Christ is, but they do not accept the deity of who he is. This particular part of the Trinity is a hurdle for believers and unbelievers alike. Now, Muslims may surprise us. Muslims believe in the greatness of Jesus Christ, just not the Christ part. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe that Jesus, in fact, did miracles when he was on this earth. They believe that he was a sinless prophet, but they get to the point where they deny his divinity. When you look at Jehovah Witness, they believe Jesus was first an archangel and that he came to earth in the form of a human. After he died, he was then restored back to that title of an archangel. But again, they deny his divinity, his being the son of God. So to say Jesus is the Son of God, there's four important things we need to know as believers. The first one is when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we're saying that Jesus is fully divine, which means that he is fully God. We're also saying that Jesus is fully human, or he was fully man. Jesus being fully God and fully man are two distinct attributes that which he holds, and Jesus as God and his human nature are completely one or united in Christ. What we're going to be doing today, as we did with the Father last week, is we're going to start building a foundation about who Jesus Christ is to understand the significance of Jesus being equal with God. Now, I doubt there's many people here, if anybody, that would deny the equality of Jesus with God, but we need to understand that. And our main passage of Scripture in leading for this series comes out of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And since Christ came to make God known, then we as believers need to know everything there is to know about God. Obviously, we can't unpack everything about God in a matter of weeks, but we can know these three attributes, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And again, my hope and my prayer is that in doing this, when we come to actual Christmas Day, by the way, we are having worship on Christmas morning, that we'll come to a deeper understanding and a deeper appreciation for what Christmas means. So let's start building a foundation. The first thing we need to understand about Jesus is Jesus is historical. And that might be like a a duh type of moment saying in this sort of 
place, but we have to understand that there is actually a historical Jesus of Nazareth. He existed, that he had a massive following of people, that the Jewish leaders detested him, and that the Romans crucified him. Now, you can point through numerous historical documents that back this up, and we'll bring out a few. Now, if we were just to begin with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we would see their accounts, and we could compare the accounts of the, of the Gospels in the New Testament to other religious documents, the Gospels in the New Testament actually embarrass other religious documents. When it comes to the New Testament alone, there are over 5,800 documents, fragment manuscripts, or complete manuscripts that have been documented to which people can look at and, and trace back to even some of the original documents. If we add into the Latin when it comes to the New Testament, that would make the number jump to over 15,000 documents or fragmented documents to which we could look into the Gospels in the New Testament. If we were even to take earlier languages, some which don't even exist anymore, that number would jump to 25,000 plus documents that we can begin to compare and contrast about the historical Jesus. Now, I bring that up because when we compare this to what is known as Homer's Iliad, which is what the Greek religious system was based upon, there are only 650 documents that back that religious uh, belief, and they are found in the second or third century, while Homer wrote the Iliad in 850 BC. So that leads a very lengthy gap of time. And when it comes to the New Testament and the Gospels, they were written within the first century of Christianity, some by who were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. And the amount of copies of the New Testament books allows scholars to go and check the legitimacy of the transcripts that we have and the translations we have. And so there's even more, though, outside of the New Testament. Lee Strobel writes that the evidence of whether it is the New Testament that scholars Norman Geisler and William Nix conclude the New Testament then has not only survived more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a pure form than any other book, a form that is 99.5% pure, which is why we can trust the Word of God. It's why we can place our faith in it. Now, some might argue, well, you can't use the Bible to prove a historical Jesus, but when we look at all the evidence, that, that debate or that argument doesn't hold any weight when it comes to the authenticity of the Scriptures. As I already mentioned, there are other world religions that believe in the historical Jesus. They just don't believe in the divinity or the God nature of Jesus. This is the same issue that Jesus had when he was in his earthly ministry. The Jewish leaders did not believe or perceive him to be equal with God. But there are historians outside of the Bible that write about the historical Jesus. One of those was a Jew by the name of Josephus. He was actually a Pharisee at the time. He was commissioned by Rome to record the Roman world and Roman history and to write about the Jewish war. This made him a traitor to the Jews because he was working for Rome. But in his historical book, which is called Antiquities, he writes of Jesus, he writes of Jesus' brother James, and he writes of the birth of Christianity, and this is what he wrote concerning Jesus. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats, was a teacher of such people as accept truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was called the Christ. When Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, 
had condemned him to be crucified, and those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And the tribe of Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now, even though when you look, if you were to read Joseph's writings, he writes considerably more about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus. And the reason that is because he was commissioned by Rome. And John the Baptist was seen as more of a threat to the Roman Empire than Jesus was, even though he had a large following. But when we take Josephus' writings and it comes to Roman policies, we've actually had archaeology and other historical documents which back up the accuracy of what he wrote concerning Jesus and other things going on in Rome. But there was another Roman historian who was believed to be the most important. His name was Tacitus. He wrote of Emperor Nero's heavy persecution of the Christians in Rome, which is mentioned briefly in the book of Acts of the New Testament. Well, this is what he wrote. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procreators, Pontius Pilatus. And most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the movement, again broke out not only in Judea, but the first source of the evil, even in Rome. Another Roman historian named Pliny the Younger also corroborates evidence for the historical Jesus. He refers to Christians, referring to Christ as a god, and he calls Christianity a cult. He obviously wasn't a fan of Christianity or Jesus Christ, but he still recorded it. There are other Jewish historians who wrote about Jesus, but they did it in disdain. I bring this up to reveal that the reliability of scriptures and historical evidence of Jesus. As a side note, when it comes to Buddhism, which is built off the teachings of Muhammad, Muhammad, but the teachings of Muhammad weren't written down until 150 years after his death. Jesus' teachings and what we have in the New Testament were written within first century with eyewitnesses. And so, historically, Jesus existed. No one can deny that. Where it comes to is the hurdle of, was he the son of God? Did he, in fact, die and rise again? But not just Jesus of the New Testament. What about Jesus of the Old Testament? Now, I say Jesus of the Old Testament. If you read through the Old Testament, there are times that Jesus appears. It's known as a Christophany. And he's usually referred to as an angel of the Lord. If you remember when Jacob wrestled with God, that was a Christophany of Jesus. If you remember Joshua conversing with the angel of the Lord before he led the Israelites into the promised land, that was a Christophany of Jesus. It's Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, three went in. How many did King Nebuchadnezzar see? Four. Four, yeah. (laughs) And he said he looks like one who is a son of the gods. That was Jesus. But when we're speaking about Jesus in the Old Testament, I want us to really focus on the prophecies. The prophecies of Jesus which point to his, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and ultimately his ascension. Now, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew points out more prophecies than any other gospel, and here's the reason. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience originally. So he's pointing the Jewish people to how Jesus fulfilled the prophecies that were spoken of him some thousands of years before Jesus Christ was even born. Now, the earliest prophecy that we can come across comes from Genesis chapter 3. It's when God pronounced the judgment upon the serpent because he made Adam and Eve sin. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring. 
Now, the offspring of the serpent, who was Satan, is going to be the enemies of God. The offspring of the woman are going to be the people of God. And so this is what God is foreshadowing of what's going to come uh, through Jesus Christ. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, as Israel is pronouncing the blessings upon his son, he comes to his son Judah, where he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. This was given thousands of years before Jesus Christ. There are scholars that have estimated there's somewhere between 450 to 570 prophecies pointing to Christ, and 300 of those point to his earthly ministry. In 2 Samuel, the prophet Samuel promised David his offspring would rule forever on the throne, pointing to Jesus. In the book of Psalms, we have prophecies concerning Jesus. Obviously, in the prophetic books, there are prophecies concerning Jesus. If you read through the book of Isaiah, it is dominated by such prophecies, and that was 600 to 700 years before Jesus Christ would be born. All four Gospels pull from the prophecies to point to Jesus being the Messiah, the Savior, the the long-awaited one. If you want to read the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find him writing such things as the prophets said or the prophet Isaiah wrote. So all these are lead. We got the foundation. Jesus is historical. Jesus from the Old Testament. It leads us to understand Jesus is the incarnation. The term incarnation comes from a Latin word, which means enfleshment or embodiment. The doctrine of the incarnation means that the one true God... The creator of the heavens and the earth took on human flesh in Jesus, hence giving Jesus two natures. He had the divine and he had the human. The implication for us to understand this is if if Jesus is not divine, then he cannot be the Christ. And if Jesus is not human, then he cannot be the Savior. The doctrine of incarnation is more clearly defined in 451 AD at the Creed of Chalcedon, which states, We, with all one voice, confess our Lord Jesus Christ to be one and the same Son, perfect in divinity and humanity, truly God and truly human, consisting of a rational soul and a body, being of one substance with the Father in relation to his divinity, and being of one substance with us in relation to his humanity, and is like us in all things apart from sin." Now, there are several passages we could look at to pull out the incarnation, but if you have your Bibles handy... Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5 and reading through verse 11. And the word of the Lord says, Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let's walk through this briefly. The phrase in verse 6, he was in the form of God, or though he was in the form of God, carries the meaning from the Greek morphe. We get the word morphism from it. As we talk about like a 
caterpillar morphing into a butterfly. It is referring to the inner nature of something, but not its outer nature. And so what Paul is being led by the Spirit to write here is to point out that Jesus existed in the very nature of God, but he did so in human flesh. So Jesus morphed from his God state to take on human form. The phrase, but he emptied himself, literally means that he poured himself out. Meaning all of God is poured out into Jesus himself as Jesus' son. And so he still maintains his divine nature even though he was in human flesh. Then in verse 8, it says that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Now, since God has always been, and God will always be, we talked about that last week, this is the pointing to the fact that though Jesus was God, he had to take on human form to have human weaknesses in order to die for the sins of the world. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation For the sins of people. Rob Phillips writes that the message of the incarnation is that the eternal Son of God became flesh, that is, he added sinless humanity to his deity, never relinquishing his deity or abandoning his humanity. Christ is one in substance with the Father in regard to his divine nature, and one in substance with humanity in regard to his human nature. The two natures unite perfectly in the one person of Jesus Christ. And so this gets us to where we need to get. And understanding, and I don't think anybody would argue with this, that Jesus is God. If you were to look in every book of the New Testament, it points to this very truth. Though he was a human being, he was still God in nature. He was still divine. We can even find Old Testament passages of Scripture pointing to this very truth of Jesus being God the Son and God in the flesh. Now, one of the most prominent, make your way to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 1. And John writes, again being led by the Spirit, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made that was made. And jump to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John's opening to his gospel should remind us of the verse we kind of honed in on last week, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you look back in John chapter 1, verse 1, John starts that very way. In the beginning was the Word, and he was in the beginning with God. So John is trying to let his audience right off the bat know and let us understand that Jesus, like God, has always been, and Jesus, like God, will always be. He is eternal. He is of the same nature. John draws out the two distinct natures of God, the Father and God the Son, in verse 2. And the word was with God, meaning that there's two distinct things there. There's God and their son. But then he also brings out the equality of Jesus with God. And the word was God. Then in verse 14, he draws out the incarnation that we just spoke of. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
That word dwelt there in verse 14 is literally should be read as tabernacled. It is to point his audience, to point us back to the Old Testament when God instructed his people to build the tabernacle, which they were to put in the middle of the camp and all the tribes would camp around it. It was a symbolic thing to say that the presence of God was in the midst of his people. He was going to be the center of them. And so when we come here to John chapter 1, verse 14, what we're seeing is that God the Son is now tabernacling within his people. He is dwelling amongst them. And with the Holy Spirit, which we'll bring out next week, we'll find that he dwells inside of them. Now, anybody can write good things about Jesus, but Jesus made it abundantly clear throughout his ministry that this was the truth. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus makes the declaration, I and the Father are one. And he says this to a crowd of Jewish people who hear him say these words and immediately want to stone him for blasphemy. Because they understood that the Father is the Father of Israel. He is the God, the Creator, the Judge. And now Jesus is stating very clearly within his ministry, we're the same. We're one. He also told his disciples at another time in John chapter 14, verse 9, that whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, why do we need to focus on this? Because I think a lot of us believe this. I think a lot of us had this understanding as we've grown up. This is the sole distinction between Christianity and all other world religions. Is that we believe Jesus was God in the flesh, that he lived a perfect life according to the word of God, that he died at the hands of sinners, and, here's the pivotal part, he rose again. This is what distinguishes what we believe from every other religion, even if they title themselves Christian. As as Christians, we believe that Jesus was God incarnate in the flesh, which made him the, the Savior, or made him the Christ, and because he's in the flesh, it made him a Savior. Because only being in the flesh could he die and rise again. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17 and verse 19, writes that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We're going to unpack those verses on Christmas morning. There's a preview for you. <laughs> Chapter 2 of Colossians, we're also told that for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we are told Christ is the image of God. Now, what's the point? That's why he's worthy of worship. That's why he's worthy of devotion, submission, and obedience. That's why we call him not just Savior, but we call him Lord. And it has an, it's supposed to have an impact on us as God's people. That God, in his love, came out of the heavens, played by 
the world's rules, even though he invented them. And he allowed sinful people to kill him so that he could rise again to save them. That's a great God. That's a God worthy of worship and worthy of praise. And that's the decision everyone has to make about Jesus Christ. That he was God in the flesh. Because again, he can only be the Christ if he's God. And he can only be the Savior if he was a man. I'd like to take from one of C.S. Lewis's probably more famous quotes in a book called Mere Christianity. If you're looking for a book for Christmas, I would tell you to read it. Check it out of the library. Maybe even have your own copy. But C.S. Lewis wrote this. He wrote more than Chronicles of Narnia, by the way. (laughs) But he wrote this out of mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. And you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus being God the Son means he has the same character and nature of God, which is how he was able to come and make God known. He stands in equality with him. All this is why God can be known in Christ, and Christ can offer redemption through his death and resurrection Because this means the full authority and the full power of God rests in him. So when he tells his disciples in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, that's the authority. He speaks the words of God and he sends them out in his name just as he sends us out. And this all happened because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all came to reveal their love to fallen man. John chapter 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And sometimes we forget verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So that brings us to our final question. Have you accepted this incredible gift of love from God the Father, God the Son, so you might receive God the Spirit. If you're unsure, you know for certain you haven't, I'd like to lead you and tell you how you can do it. God didn't make it difficult. First, we have to come before God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and we have to admit we're a sinner. And we fall short. And how do you know if you're a sinner? Well, you're eventually going to die. And that's what sin does. It's slowly killing us. 
So we admit before God, God, I'm a sinner, and, and there's things in my life I'm not proud of. There's things I, I do that I, I don't brag about. But then we, we tell God, but I believe you sent your only son to live a life I couldn't. He died on the cross for me and rose again so I could be forgiven for all of my sins, past, present, and future. It means sins you don't even know you're going to commit yet, but God does. And he wants to give you forgiveness for all of them. When we come to that place when we believe that God would love us that much, then we confess to God, God, I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. I need redemption. I need eternal life. I need you. And the Bible says when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and our need for him, we'll be given eternal life. That's out of Romans chapter 10. But to confess means to make public. So maybe you're here this morning and this is a decision God is just speaking to your heart that you need to take care of. I'm going to be standing down here. We're going to be singing a song and everybody's going to stand up and I'm just going to invite you to come down the aisle. And you can just sit here in the front. I'll come sit by you and just tell me, Pastor, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. But maybe you're here and you come to a realization, wow, I mean, I understood everything we talked about. I'm really not in awe of it at all. I just need to come before the Father and say, Lord, so sorry for making you so small. God is good. I threw you off, so I usually do it later, right? God is good all the time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your faithfulness. For being a good God, a good Father, a perfect Savior. And Lord, right now the heavenly creatures are singing and praising your worthiness. Because you were the lamb that was slain, but you rose again. Lord, thank you for paying such a heavy cost for us. And then allowing us to become one of yours. Father, there's someone here this morning who needs to make this confession of faith that we just talked about. I pray your spirit would just come upon them, convict them, and then bring them to a place of repentance that they may have salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life. pray you continue to be glorified in this moment. Your kingdom and will continue to be done. We praise all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.